Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate community members. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with professor of music and director of the Colgate University Orchestra, Marietta Chang. Professor Chang has been a Colgate Presidential Scholar and AAUP Professor of the Year. In addition to her scholarship and orchestral direction at Colgate, Cheng is also conductor laureate of the Orchestra of the Southern Finger Lakes. Cheng served as the musical director and conductor of the Corning Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus from 1986 to 1995, and she has guest conducted the Chautauqua Symphony Orchestra. Cheng has served on the faculty at the Aspen Music Festival, and since 2000, she has conducted a children's concert series in upstate New York with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. Cheng was chosen as one of 50 great women conductors worldwide, profiled in a book on women conductors, and as one of a unique group of 100 women leaders from across the United States, she added her voice to Lifetime Television's National Summit on Women in the 21st Century. Professor Chang earned her bachelor's degree from Smith College and her master's of music from the New England Conservatory of Music. Professor Chang, welcome to 13. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I am so happy you're here, and this marks our first musical-inspired uh, episode. Hooray. I'm so glad to have someone from the music department here. And I think it's always great to start out with a little bit of your background, and I would love to know how you became interested in music and what led you to becoming an orchestral conductor. I joke around that it was always by watching Fantasia. Ah! You know, you want to get to shake Mickey Mouse's hand if you're a conductor, but that was pivotal. Um, I started playing piano at age six and cello at age eight, and I was pretty serious about it by the time I was 11. And through high school, I was practicing three hours a day, which is, you have to be serious about it. And then I went, when I went to college, I thought, oh, I'll just be a pianist. And I really worked hard. By then, I was practicing three or four hours a day. And the choral conductor, who was a fairly famous uh, woman choral conductor in the East, uh, Ivy D. Hyatt, wanted an accompanist for the Glee Club. And uh, I was interested in being soloist rather than accompanying. So I sort of demurred. And she said, oh, well, up the ante and you can do the assistant conducting, and I'll give you a lot of choice bits. And I said, great. And then I was bitten by the bug. Oh, you couldn't wow. stop me by then. And so in college, I decided I'd do more and more conducting, and that's why I went to a New England Conservatory in conducting. And another great woman conductor, Lorna cook um was a mentor, and so that really worked well. And then, but then it, you know, I, I, I had decided that was my role, that was my path. And then I was really lucky because Colgate was my first job. Oh, wow. No fooling. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. And when you came on, what was your title? I was the director of the choral program. Okay. Choral activities. I started doing chorus until 1993, exclusively choral plus teaching in the classroom, of course. And I enjoyed that. There are four European tours. There were three recordings, um, one CD. Um, we did tours in the United States. It was very exciting, and I loved the students. I, I thought that was great time from when I came to Colgate in 1976 to 1993. And then um, the orchestra conductor at the time, Bill Skelton, retired, and then I took over the orchestra in 1993. So it's been 30-some years doing wow. the orchestra. That is very great. cool. And your answer may, uh, I think, play into this uh, next question because I was curious um, about conducting 
being something that is heavily male dominated. And you talked about having a couple of female mentors um, along the way is I guess, have you experienced a lot of headwinds as a female conductor or is it something that because you had these these mentors that kind of, I guess, um, I don't know how to put it, is was uh, a path that was easier to travel because you had those people going? Well, keep you. in mind, those women were choral conductors, which oh, okay. is what I started out gotcha. to. And then I switched to orchestral conducting, which uh, was much more at home for me because I was a pianist and cellist rather than as a singer. You don't really want to hear me sing. <laughs> so um, it was a natural thing for me to go instrumental. Um, there are a lot of biases against women as leaders, we all know. Sure. We don't have a women United States president. The difficulty sometimes uh, were just uh, there are people say, oh, a woman shouldn't be in that role. A woman should stay at home. As recently as 2013, there's a Yuri Tamirakhanov, Tamir- uh, who's a Russian conductor, and he conducts at St. Petersburg, and he said that, Quote, the essence of a conductor's profession is strength. The essence of a woman is weakness. And um, another conductor, another Russian, Petrenko, said that a sweet or cute girl on the podium means musicians think of something else. And so there's – and then Harold Schoenberg wrote in in The Great Conductors, a book of his, is saying that you know when the downbeat's going to occur if a woman is conducting, when the slip starts to show. So there are a lot of recent, recent uh, quotes that people are saying that, wow, I don't want a woman leader or for whatever reason. And there are still very few women music directors. Now, music director is the CEO of the orchestra, the, the person who's the boss in many, many ways. Um, if you're just a conductor, you could just be a guest conductor just okay. for a one weekend or uh, three or four days. So in terms of music conductors, there are, uh, music directors, there are only maybe 10%. Uh, you know, so that's really low mm. when you talk about it. And um, in terms of professional orchestras like the New York Philharmonic and Boston Symphony, if you look at the big budget orchestras, that's how they're categorized. Um, right now, there's nobody in the top 25, no woman who is the music director of a top 25 orchestra, professional orchestra. So there's still plenty of room to get better, to improve in terms of making women uh, more as role models for other people. And so that's an important thing. For me, too, I think that uh, even just being a woman and saying, you can do it, you can, you can progress, and you can become uh, whatever your dream is, is important. So, yes, today we still have a problem I don't know whether it's um, bias uh, from the boards. Sometimes it's the boards who say, well, can a woman fundraise? Can a woman get the audience out? Can the woman uh, program so that everybody wants to come? Can she go out and, and smooth with the donors? Can she um, go out into the public schools? You know, all the things that a woman leader should do. And, of course, a woman can do that. But it's tradition, you know, that um, the, the Vienna Philharmonic or the Berlin Philharmonic or whatever, they have so few women and very few women conductors that they just aren't used to it and are accustomed. And so they don't even think – Let's try to, this as an experiment. They, they just say, no, we're not, we're not doing that for the music director, for the CEO. And if you look back again recently, if you say that in the 80s, the um, Berlin Philharmonic said we don't want to have women as players, not the, the leaders. There was a famous um, uh, clarinetist who won the principal clarinet job, and all the other people around her in the orchestra, you know, 99.5% men, they froze her out, and she left within a couple, you know, they just didn't want to have that. Um, then there's another example in the Vienna Philharmonic where they had a, a longstanding harpist who was a woman, but they never gave her permanent status as a 
player. They just sort of said, oh, you're just a sub. And so even though she played with them regularly, they said, you're not getting the full pay and the full benefits and like that. So that's crazy. And so it's really not at all 50-50%, even in the great orchestras today, you know, the, the European ones and even the American ones. We're talking about 25-30% or maybe in some, but the smaller budget you go, then there are more women. Oh, wow. Maybe that's because it's uh, less competitive. I don't think it's less competitive, but I think it's mainly just because the the plum jobs are the New York Philharmonic, the mm-hmm. Boston Symphony, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the men all really, really rush to, mm-hmm. to those auditions. And that's the other thing, Dan. The auditions are, are fascinating because people recognize there's bias against women. So only recently, only the last 30, 40 years, have they said we're going to do blind auditions. Oh. You'd, you'd walk out as a woman, and they'd say, oh, a woman, we're not sure about that. Would she tour with us? You know, would she just a family life? How she's going to decide? You know, all those things. So there was a bias against women. So then they said, we should have screens. So you can't tell whether it's a man or a woman oh. playing. That helped. But you only have screens for the first two rounds, and then by the finalist round, that no longer screens because you need to, to hear, hear better because the screens affect the mm. acoustics. And so that made a difference. And then another refinement, they decided that you could hear a woman coming out onto the stage by her heels. Oh, my goodness. So if a man, you know, loafers or whatever that they were, that you couldn't, you okay. But if a woman has a little bit more of a heavy click or whatever with a, a heel, a two-inch loafer or whatever, you could tell. So then they put down carpet. I mean, it's just fascinating how this has progressed, but it's still not 50-50, which is where it should be. I had no idea, at, at, you know, in this day and age that it was that bad. Yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, if you think about it, we just um, – we're not used to women as the, the role model, as the leader, uh, whether that has to do with conducting, which is, of course, lots of touring, lots of leaving home. If you're a guest conductor every other weekend, you're gone from Tuesday through Sunday. And whether some women just don't want to do that, if they have kids or whatever, they're away a mm. lot, and they're living in airports. So whether it's that, whether it's a lack of um, the the real competitiveness that you need as a woman to, to succeed in a in a profession that's that's like this. So in general psychological terms, I mean, some women are are very good at what they do, but they are maybe not the most competitive, the most. I'm going to get head by any means. I'm not saying that men do that either, but um, it's just not tradition. And if you look at some of the studies that they've talked about, girls are um, appalled if they're considered bossy growing up, or they just so they sort of shy away from those professions slightly. Hmm. Um, so it's there's a lot of many factors of why women haven't um, just flocked to pe- being a conductor. So can you peel back the curtain a little bit or pull back the curtain, I should say, as to the job of a conductor? I think most people, if you're not intimately involved with music or the orchestra scene, you see a person standing in front kind of directing. Um, But tell us what goes into that job. How does it work on the day-to-day for a conductor? Is it selecting the music and then ensuring people are coming in on the right side? Like, I I guess, giving instruction to the orchestra? I'm guessing here. So I'm I'm curious as to, like, the role of the conductor. And obviously, they're in charge. But how does that work? What what goes into that job? Well, it differs. Obviously, here at Colgate, the Colgate University Orchestra, which I love, um, I do all the programming. I do all the hiring of soloists. I do... 
uh, making sure that the, the risers are set up correctly, making sure we have the right students, the right subs, that, doing the rehearsal schedule so they know when to come, um, uh, working out pay, working out whatever it is, all the nitty-gritty. But for professional orchestras, uh, not college orchestras, professional orchestras, it's you have to do fundraising. You have to give speeches. I can't even remember how many times I spoke at the YMCA, the Rotary <laughs> Club, the all the uh, um, uh, important community organizations. Um, you have to talk to the board constantly about if if and you are responsible again for the programming, for the concerts, for the soloists, and for the musicians and hiring musicians and all that as well. But uh, the additional um, being able to represent the orchestra or go out into the community or say, we need to do uh, another assembly at the high school or we need to invite in kids for a um, a concert that's an educational concert. Um, The orchestras that I conducted, the orchestra Southern Finger Lakes, the Corning Philharmonic, Additionally, the Hudson Valley Philharmonic, uh, there was a lot of that community things. And we would do runouts of the concerts that we would do in our home, let's say in the Corning Glass Auditorium. And then we'd do a runout to Hornell or to other places in, in the Southern Tier. And then you'd say, okay, how are we getting there? Who's going to do the directions? So there are so many factors that are going on, and things can go wrong. Would you like to hear about all the musical oh, yes. disasters? Yes, I have a question about musical disasters here. So why don't we go right into it? Um, have you had any live performance disasters during your tenure? Uh, I can't imagine that, that there would be a zillion that I could. <laughs> let me just get the ones that are most amusing. Okay. We did a Verdi Requiem here at Colgate, and I hired the four soloists. And the tenor, whom I had known and, and really admired, decided that he got sick. Now, the reason I said decided, he came to the rehearsal on a Friday Sounded fine to me, but Saturday morning said, I got a sore throat, and I don't you know, so I don't think I'm going to um, sing the solo tenor roles. I'll, I'll do the ensemble tenor roles, but not the solo. But don't worry, because my teacher and mentor at the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, Jacques Trussell, will come. He'll fly in early Sunday morning. This is a Sunday afternoon concert, okay. and you'll have time to work with him and figure out his interpretation and things like that. Normally, you'd have at least an hour and a half with a soloist. Um, it, with uh, instrumental solos, it could be even less time with a soloist. All right, so I said, fine, uh, we'll rehearse with you on Saturday afternoon, and you can do it all, but then I understand that you won't do the ensemble ten- uh, the solo tenors. You'll do only the ensemble tenor roles. So Jacques Trussell said he'd come. Of course, there was a snowstorm that oh, morning. Oh, no. The flights were delayed. Our concert that time was at 3.30. He arrived at 2.45. And there was no time for any touch-up, no other time. Well, how fast are you going to do this? What are you doing? So the orchestra was appalled that we had no rehearsal at all with an important tenor. And I found out later that he hadn't done the Verdi Requiem in 15 years. And so even then, I'm thinking, oh, if he had just done it yesterday, I would feel much more professional. So... We went through it, and the orchestra was on pins and needles because you just don't normally do that where you, you have no time with the soloist. Of course, it went immaculately because everybody Aww. was so concerned. So after the concert, I'll tell you this story about, again, this fun- functions into women conductors. He came and said, it was a great concert, and congratulations, you conduct just like a man. <laughs> I was on the floor. I said, yeah, <laughs> and what am I supposed to say with that? He meant it was strong and right. I- impressive, but... Conduct just like a man. Um, 
some other disasters. We had a concert down in the Corning, um, so this is the Orchestra Southern Finger Lakes, and we were doing uh, a, a work that called for organ as accompaniment too. Well, the organ caught on fire. Oh, my God. During the performance? No, no. Oh. We had had it set up in certain places, and then the organ was switched a little bit, and so they needed an extension cord. Well, you should not put an extension cord that is not properly uh, plugged in, you know, on with an organ, with a you know one of those home organs. Um, so during the intermission where we were re- ready to do this Britain choral work, right after it, the organ started smoking, and smoke started billowing up oh enough God. so that the audience started coming up. And somebody came to me at backstage and said, you know, the organ's on fire. And I'm, oh, my, you know. So then I went out and took a look at it. And, yes, there was enough smoke that people were saying, should we set the fire alarm? What we should we do? <laughs> and we were saying to the, the audience, it's all right. You know, and I didn't know. We didn't have to call the fire department. But we unplugged everything. And we said, we need another organ. So the bassist of the orchestra said, you know, I have a friend who has a home organ, and I'll go call that person, and I have a pickup truck. We can go we can go pick it up. And it's like a Hammond B3 organ. And pick it up and bring it in. It'll just mean a delay of maybe half an hour. Okay, I announced this to the, the audience. There'll be a slight delay. Instead of a 20-minute intermission, it'll be a 30-minute. No problem. Well, the person couldn't reach the, 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 the one he was going to get the organ from on the phone. Went to the house. Nobody was home. Oh, no. He stole the <laughs> organ from that person's house. Got it into the truck. Got it back. Forty minutes by then, had it stopped. And then we went on. It was fine. But it, it, it's kind of crazy about that. Oh man. Then there was the percussionist who forgot completely that there was a concert that day. He, I don't know why he didn't write it down or why he didn't show up. He had the music. So and it was an important percussion. So I madly, you know, an hour before the concert, was writing down in script at this time um, any percussion cues and like that so the other percussions could sort of fit, fit, you know, their part. And obviously they had their assignments, and so this was going to be on top of it, and we had no time for rehearsal. So they're saying, well, what do I do here? Do I play the snare drum? Do I play this? Do I put, you know, and I'm trying to put that fire out, and that took forever. And it was, we were winging it, and you, you don't normally wing it at an orchestra concert. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh, no. So we, I don't want to confess, but we probably were missing some of that percussionist's parts because we just couldn't do it like that. We had a soprano when, we were, when I was on tour who broke her ankle and uh, still wanted to continue on the tour. Well, we were in Salzburg, and she, we were going to go to Hohen Salzburg, so there was some tourism involved. She d- insisted that she would be able to do go on crutches. Well, Hohen Salzburg has like 300 steps going oh, up like no. this, like that. She managed to do it up and down. And then on the smallest, small incline going to the bus at that point, she fell and sprained her other ankle. Oh, no. So she couldn't walk. She had the broken ankle and the sprained ankle. So there were <clears throat> really wonderful students who said, we will carry her. They carried her for three days to the bathroom, to her room, <gasps> to like that. I mean, two or three of the guys. And I was just stunned. I mean, we needed her. She was a good soprano, but she, in retrospect, she just should have gone home. There's just <laughs> no question that we could have done like that. Um, my own husband at the time was um, helping at, the, at a Pops concert, and after the Pops concert, it was July 4th, there were fireworks. Mm-hmm. So normally, we all, everybody in the orchestra and the chorus were saying, okay, we better get out before the fireworks. Otherwise, you're going to wait an hour while the, the huge traffic jam and the cars all leaving. The, you know, so it could be 45 minutes that you'd wait there. So everybody's trying to madly get out after the, the concert, after the 1812 overture. And so I was trying to get all the music and all like that, and he was trying to help me. And, of course, he fell off the stage. 
And he had to have surgery on his ankle. Oh, jeez. And he had the EMTs there and the ambulance, and they said, you got to go to the hospital. But he says, no, 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 it doesn't hurt. Well, we got back to Hamilton, and then, of course, the surgeon said, three pins. So all sorts of things that are happening that you don't want to happen in terms of disasters. I had other things. A soloist who was coming um, from maybe eight, six hours away, for some reason was thinking of the music or whatever, put diesel in his car instead of regular <laughs> The car just stopped, oh, yeah. called, you know, to, to get a towed and like that, missed the rehearsal completely. So I had to call an extra rehearsal before the concert, an hour before the concert. And fortunately, it was a work we knew. It hadn't been the Mozart fourth uh, violin concerto. We were okay, but that's not what you want. Another violinist who was coming from Boston, and for some reason, she got completely lost in Albany. And she went up to Canada oh, no. instead of this, you know, we're going across to and threw way down. And she missed the entire rehearsal. I'm sitting there waiting, and I, she didn't call me like that. And um, I just let the orchestra go an hour early, and they were walking out. She's walking in. And I said, what happened? She said, I just got lost. And, you know, and so then same thing. And when you have that emergency rehearsal, you have to eat the pay. You have to just, mm. whatever, four or $500, whatever it is. And then you worried about will it go go as well as it would have had we had we had that sure. extra rehearsal. Um, I had a concertmaster who took a, a vacation to London. He was Canadian, and hadn't checked on his green card. Was stopped in the London airport and said, "Oh no, you don't have a current United States green card. You can't go." He calls me two days in advance. I have to really call everybody in my Rolodex to find another concertmaster, which is not easy to do. What's the role of concertmaster? Concertmaster is supposedly the leader of the orchestra. He's the first chair violin. Okay. And often does all the bowings, often does, um, if there are any uh, translations between the conductor and the orchestra, particularly for like Gus conductors or whatever. So he's the second leader in essence. So he told me, and so to, to find somebody of that caliber who's experienced, who had played all the repertoire that we were performing, that was, that was very, very difficult. Then the piece de resistance is, I myself slipped on the ice. That's this Friday before a Sunday concert. I had to have nine stitches in my jaw. I looked like a, a junior Frankenstein. Oh, no. And I, I, they were worried I had a concussion, and I had a re- rehearsal Friday night, rehearsal Saturday, and the concert was on Sunday, and I couldn't eat well. They said, oh, have you broken your jaw? You know, I hadn't, but it was, you know, like that. Yeah. It was very difficult, and I was thinking, can I take aspirin? Can I take ibuprofen? Because I was in pain after falling. I fell down three steps and landed on bricks. Ooh. So it wasn't real easy. And I walked in, and the orchestra's looking at me thinking, what happened to you? You know, you look all these, these nine stitches in your jaw. And I'm thinking, this is not going to go well because I'm, I'm on ibuprofen, you know, and I, I don't know whether this is going to work all right. Um, but then, of course, I got the sympathy vote from the orchestra and everything else, and I mentioned it to the audience, and everybody was with me. So Aww. it worked out great. But you have disaster stories. All these backstage things occur and the audience can't see a thing because you're supposed to have it totally professional, seamless. I had, oh, one Colgate student who won the concerto competition, and she's downstairs having a panic attack right before, an hour before she was supposed to perform her concerto. And I'm sitting there trying to convince her, trying to hep her up, saying, you'll be great, it'll be wonderful, don't worry about it. And, and uh, she did, She and, and she was fine, but she, you know, I don't, 
really think of myself as being a psychiatrist or somebody telling that sure. you'll be wonderful and doing all that level of cheerleading. And so these things happen backstage. And oh, and then finally another one. <laughs> I, I could go on and on. These are great. Um, where a member of the orchestra was eight months pregnant. So she comes out on stage and, and is after the overture, and I'm backstage ready to go out. And she said, I think I'm having the baby. And I'm thinking, oh, no. I don't know what. So we said, is there a doctor in the house? You know, And oh, wow. there didn't have to be a doctor. And then after about 15 minutes, and the audience is saying, you know, what's going on? We are going to welcome a new citizen, a new baby. And she said, I'll be all right. I'll bet. And so she did. She went back up on stage. But... You don't understand how that changes your mindset to the next performance. You're not completely thinking of Beethoven when, oh, my God, she's going to be okay. She played she, through? She played through the entire concert. I don't know how, but um, she told me later that that she unloosened her uh, uh, tight pants a little bit so that, you know, the baby is right there, and, and that helped her breathe. But these things happen, and I almost, oh, I had another one, a soloist, who uh, was uh, I was really looking forward to working with. He cut his finger on Friday, and the management said, we will find you somebody else. Do not worry. I said, well, how did he cut his finger? Apparently, lots of soloists and people cut a bagel, and they don't cut the bagel properly, and he sliced it open. So I had to find another soloist, and he and the management couldn't find it. So I had to get my Rolodex out and start making phone calls. And he was going to do the corn gold, and we had to switch concerti, something else. And and the final one, uh, I, for now, the final <laughs> disaster story, another one, Orchestra Southern Finger Lakes, um, I was doing a, 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 a great, you know, we were doing a, a, a Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and um, the soloist, who I was really looking forward to working with, got a call from the Cleveland Orchestra. Well, sorry, you're always going to take the Cleveland Orchestra over, you know, a, a professional orchestra here in Upstate. And so he said, I have a contract with the orchestra of the Southern Finger Lakes, but it's the Cleveland Orchestra, So, because Janine Jansen had gotten sick. So I, I, I'm i going to go do that. I'm thinking, this is Tuesday for a second. So the, the, his management said, oh, we'll, we'll find somebody. Well, then she tried this, and I, nobody was willing. You know. So I had to again find somebody on Wednesday, and I got a great 16-year-old, wonderful um, prodigy, and she, came, she showed up, but I had to back. At emergency, get the next other music, rehearse that with the orchestra. Fine, and I hadn't worked with her before, so I wasn't sure about was this going to work. And uh, and uh, some soloists are great about last minute. There are some people who make their careers about stepping in in 24 hours, and they love it. And others who say that I'm not as prepared as I would ordinarily be if I'd have a month or whatever. Of course, and so you got to find that good fit. Of somebody who loves, who's an adrenaline junkie, mm-hmm. who loves that sort of concept of, okay, I only have 24 hours, I'll stay up all night, and I'll remember this. So usually it's somebody who's played the piece many times, but not always. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, and it, I find out later, oh, I haven't played that in 10 years, or I haven't played that, and I'm thinking, thank I I'm glad I didn't know that in advance. <laughs> My, you know, adrenaline would have really gone up high. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of white knuckle moments. It is. Yes. Um, so if you're really, really prepared, which I always try to be, then you just go with the flow. You say, all right, I know this is going to throw me for a loop, but you rise above it. Wow. How does the orchestra work at Colgate? Is it a class or can anyone do it? Like, how does it function? Yeah, the students in the orchestra, I'm so proud of them. I admire them. Usually they have started playing their instrument 
age eight, age nine. So they come to Colgate with nine years of playing fairly important um, and, you know, not only youth orchestras, but prizes and, and um, that, that all sort of thing. So they come with that experience, which I think that's the only department at most colleges, and I think Colgate, where you need nine years of prior experience before you arrive at a college or, wow. you know, whatever, in order to, to, to play in the orchestra. So they come and they, many of them only love it and they don't need the credit or they aren't music majors. I have very few music majors, sometimes only one or two mm. out of the entire orchestra. And very few of them take orchestra for credit as a course. You can take it as a half credit each semester and you can do that for two years. So they don't need the grade, they don't need the credit. Many of them, I have so many pre-med students, so they already have labs, they already have other things, so they already up four and a half or even five courses. So if they want to take orchestra, that puts them over the limit. You know, they don't want to take five and a half or four. So very few of them take orchestra for credit and and get a grade. and that's that's fine, but it doesn't affect their talent level or their dedication. So they love classical music, and that's what they are. You know, I, I always choose music that will fit them and their talent level, and a, a little bit of challenge because we don't want to do things that are too easy. Sure, um, we want them to grow, and then we have the professionals, the educational model. So they're sitting next to somebody who's like their high school music teacher or a professional. And so they can tell them bowings or fingerings or things like that. So then they're always improving. I mean, I, I, some people say that's how I play tennis. I always play tennis with somebody who's a little better than mm. I am, so I'll improve my game sure. or golf game or whatever. If not, then I'll rest on my laurels. So the students do that. And then uh, they are really inspired by the professional and by the soloists. When I get a top-notch, world-class soloist, I always hear the students, they perk up, they play better, they talk, there's a buzz that's going on um, when they hear, this is how it's done. So that's fun. Mm. So I'd like to talk a little bit, too, about your teaching. And I understand you've taught 14 different courses yes, at Yes, I Colgate. have. How do you develop your course ideas and maybe what has been your most popular or most well-received offering um, and if it's different, what is your most enjoyable class? Yeah, I came to Colgate saying, I'm a conductor. I'll teach conducting. I'll teach history of the symphony. I might teach um, harmony. I might teach um, musicianship. I might teach music history. I had no clue that I was going to end up teaching the history of rock <laughs> and the Beatles. And that's what I, you know, I just was fascinated by it myself. But that's a sort of a, a byway. And then I also taught Court China and the Faust legend. But the most unusual people are saying, what, you're teaching the rock course? You know, And I said, yes, because I'm trying to uh, have the students get better at critical thinking and using rock as a vehicle for that. So we do a lot of song analysis. And we're talking about 22 bands from 1954 to 1984, the bands that are the most musically innovative. So we study their songs. We study the lyrics. Do the lyrics match the music? Why did the Beatles do art rock, the, the importance of the studio? And then they learned that's a lot more to rock mm-hmm. than just putting it on the stereo and avid it in the background. So that uh, it's fun for me because it puts a spark in their eye. They, they can go home and talk about it with their parents. I have so many of my students whose parents are Beatles fans <laughs> or uh, the Rolling Stones or Beach Boys or whatever, and their dinner table conversation has gone right up. That They really enjoy that. The same thing with the Beatles. The Beatles are still relevant today, 
obviously the uh, just even the last thing they're talking about um, new releases or new documentaries or that. And so the fact that music is loved is really important to me and it's significant. So that's mm-hmm. been fun. Uh, Core China is because uh, obviously um, my background is Chinese and I get a, a chance to do topics in China and not only music, but all sorts of history and religion and culture and things like that. And the Faust legend, um, I taught uh, in the 80s with um, George Langdon's wife, Agnes Langdon, whom I just thought was great, and Kit Hensley. So we team taught it about the Faustian bargain. And I taught the music. Somebody else taught the, the atomic bomb as the Faustian bargain. You sell your soul to the devil in order to progress humanity and science. And Agnes Langan, of course, taught all the literature and uh, the Thomas Mann, Dr. Faustus. So it was really challenging for the students to get into something they had no clue about before they came to Colgate. So that's what the core is really good at. That's really neat. And then, of course, I taught all the regular music courses as well. Sure. What are some of the other bands? You mentioned three. You mentioned the Beach Boys, the Stones, and the Beatles. What are well, some of the other bands? Well, we start in the 50s. Yeah. So we start about the predecessors of rock and roll. So we do B.B. King and Bo Diddley and Fats Domino and Winoni Harris. Then we work into Bill Haley, really who's thought of as maybe one of the first rock and rollers with um, Rock Around the Clock. Mm. And then we move into the other 50s artists that were important musically. So we talk about Little Richard. We talk about... Um, Jerry Lee Lewis, we talk about um, Elvis, and of course, uh, Buddy Holly. So those are the, the heavy hitters. Now, we, we talk about Elvis even though he didn't write any songs. Mm. If you look at, the, and there's credit to Elvis, that was contracted. He didn't write the songs. But he's a wonderful performer, and he introduces a lot of things in live performance to rock and roll. And of course, he's known um, because of, of all the marketing as the king of rock. And then in the 60s, we get into the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, um, we're just finishing up the uh, Rolling Stones and going into The Grateful Dead. Ah. And then The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and working from there on in The Who. Um, and then we get into the 70s and we end with Bruce Springsteen. Very nice. Let me make a pitch. Where's Black Sabbath? <laughs> well, the, the heavy metal guys were exciting and uh, uh, wild on stage. But in terms of art rock or musical innovations, which is what my course is about, really, they aren't at the top of the list. Pink Floyd? Do they get on the Pink list? Pink Floyd is hey, on the top right. of the list. Dark Side of the Moon, we spend time awesome. on that. Time and money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're one of my favorites, Pink oh, Floyd. So cool. I want to take that course. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Oh, <clears throat> so can you talk about some of the notable musicians that you've worked with throughout the years? Yes. My favorite is Gary Graffman, a pianist who came and played with us. He's um, the, also the president director of the Curtis Institute, which has uh, it's a phenomenal talent repository. And he would be able to recommend certain of his students. But he came and he did the Ravel Concerto for the Left Hand because early on his career as a world-class pianist was curtailed because he started developing problems in his hand, mm. in his right hand, and they couldn't do enough surgery and things like that. So he ended up just being you know, a one-armed pianist. Oh, wow. And he would uh, concentrate on the left-hand piano repertoire. So he came and did this famous Ravel work. And he was such a gentleman and such... I mean, he's worked with every great orchestra in the world, and he was compliment. You know, it was just wonderful. And I'd had long, uh, many, many years after that, I'm saying, all right, can you send me your best pianist, your best... And the one that I just loved was Yuja Wong. She is a... Uh, today, everybody would love to have her as their pianist. And she 
could have her pick of any orchestra in the world. I got her when she was 18. Oh, wow. And then also when she was 19, she did the Prokofiev second and the Rachmaninoff third. And uh, she couldn't have been more what you'd expect as an 18-year-old. She talked on her cell phone. She giggled. She talked to her friends. She, you know, said, oh, whatever, a hamburger is fine. You know, she was not what you would consider as a glamorous, world-class soloist who had a, a list of what you needed. So she was so fresh and fun. And then after that, you know, she started getting found by everybody. And so I felt like I was one of the first to get to know her. And so I even still stay in touch with her a little bit. We talked about um, dogs. Midori, we talk about dogs, too. We, she came, you know, a wonderful soloist since she was age eight. And she has two little dogs, and I had I have a Bichon Frise, and at the time I had an, another Bichon Frise, and that dog had um, Figaro had allergies. So we traded stories about allergies and what medications, what food, like that. It was really charming. Now she was somebody because she was famous for, for I mean, still famous today, who in her contract, and this is true of a lot of world class soloists, say I need X, Y, and Z. Sure, writer. So. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to make sure. And I don't think I'm telling tales outside of school, but in addition to water and fruit and maybe chocolates or nuts, which is pretty normal for that, she said, I want an iron and an ironing board. I'm thinking, why would you need an iron and an ironing board? So I got my iron and ironing board and brought it up to the chapel. So I went to pick her up at the Colgate Inn to take her to the chapel. And she said, hi. And she had her concert dress there. And she threw it in the back in my trunk, all wadded up in a, in a ball. And I'm thinking, that's why she needs the iron. Because once she gets to the hall, she has to iron her concert dress. How funny. And you didn't so, have to separate M&Ms or anything. No, no. There were no M&Ms on the <laughs> concert dress. But yes, that, that is true. Then I had the soloist who forgot her concert dress. Come, just left it at home. You know, she came with everything else. And she calls me up and says, um, I, I didn't, don't arrive with a concert dress. When a, when a musician in the orchestra did that to me once, I just said, go down to Ames. We used to have an Ames down there. Buy anything black, because they don't have tuxedos at Ames. And he managed to, to make do, and he sort of hid out behind the bass drum the most <laughs> of the time. So that was okay. But when, when she said, I forgot my concert dress, I said, okay, you're you know maybe a size four. I'm not a size four, but... I, I could maybe get something that you could, of mine. So I went went back to my house and cut this and this and this, and I brought it up, black stuff, and there's a dress and a skirt, and, it, and I gave her like five different things, possibilities. Well, she was a size four, so the dress, which was nice, was spaghetti draft, like straps, and I thought, okay, it'll work, and she came and performed it. And then when she turned around to walk off stage, I noticed it was a little funny in the back because it was my dress. So it had a little white line there. And I went downstairs. She said, well, it was falling off me. And I didn't have, I couldn't sew or whatever. It was right before the concert. So I took my dental floss. <laughs> and I tied dental floss to the straps on the back. Yeah, and right. it stayed up. And she said, thank God for dental floss. I said, this is the first time that I'm worried about, you know, does the soloist have dental floss? <laughs> That's brilliant. Nice fix. So it worked. Very cool. How did... How did the music department and the orchestra and the chorus and everybody else deal with COVID over the past couple of years? Like, what has been the impact? How could you function or not function? Where do things stand now? The first year, obviously 2020, um, the, that whole 2020-2021, when the pandemic was at its height, uh, we were very concerned about that. So um, 
just to make sure that we didn't we didn't have any of the winds or brass percussion. So we just had a string orchestra. The strings were all uh, socially distanced, six feet apart. They all had to wear masks. We worried about uh, touch because at that time people thought it could be conveyed by touch. So who would put up the music? Who would get the music stands? Your chair. Um, where would you put your things in the chapel? Everybody had to have their own little area so that they weren't putting it in somebody else's area. Um, there was no, we could, sometimes we have cookies during the break. We couldn't have anything like that. We worried about the bathrooms mm -hmm. in the chapel mm -hmm. because we didn't, we were rehearsed at night. There was no custodian who could go in, in between each person and clean the bathrooms. So we said no bathroom. So that meant that instead of two and a half hour rehearsal, I had to cut that short. So it was more like an hour and a half. I mean, 18 year olds don't need to go to the bathroom that often, but people who are, you know, so that all was changed. Then we had to say, we have to open windows. Mm. We have to get um, some sort of air ventilation. We have to worry about uh, opening doors. We have to worry about do in between rehearsals. Do we have to air out the entire chapel? So that got problematic. I mean, we did do concerts uh, that were just live streamed. That okay. were just you know, um, but it wasn't the easiest thing to do all that fix. Mm. Then this past year, twenty twenty one, the fall. We were able to invite back the winds and the brass and percussion. So then we could do full orchestra things as well. But I had to buy instrument masks and bell covers because for the winds and brass, you know, if you're looking at a trumpet and the, you had to have a bell cover so that the, whatever was emitted mm -hmm. would just stay. And the instrument masks also. So the, the everybody and his brother wanted these things at, in September. So there was a, a dearth of that. So you couldn't get them online. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, but it'll be six weeks or whatever. Oh. So we did improvise things. We took surgical masks <laughs> and cut out holes so they could sit for the mouthpiece and doubled it. You know, so that sort of thing had to go on. And then, of course, we did finally get them. And then there was, again, no cookies during break, which, of course, the musicians wanted. You know, they'd gotten used to having coffee, and, and that, that was a difficulty. And then I said, well, we cannot do our normal of big orchestral pieces because then you have just too many people on stage and you worry about, I mean, I couldn't put percussion or the entire trombones in the balcony. Our stage is not big enough for big orchestra. So uh, that changed the programming somewhat too. Hmm. And finally, this semester, um, things were a little easier so we didn't have to have a lot of space in between people. And um, we haven't had to have the bell covers. You know, so things, were, things are getting better bit by bit. Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think music and art are the two kind of programs where um, students applying to Colgate can submit uh, yes, materials. that's true. Can you talk a little bit about what um, the folks in Colgate's music department are looking for when reviewing student submissions or if you have any advice for prospective students who may be thinking about applying, maybe interested in music – um, what what kind of things do you folks look for? As I mentioned, most of the musicians, um, well, all of them, have been playing for eight or nine years So and, and taking private lessons four, five, six years. So they know a little bit about what we're looking for. Some conservatories or music schools say, you want to play scales, you want to play these exercises, you want to do this, representative of, of each period. We're not like that. I always want to encourage anybody who's a musician to send in those tapes if they want, because it does help slightly in uh, admissions. So we used to, way, way back when this first started, we'd say, okay, you spend at least 15 minutes 
of your best foot forward, your best piece that you want us to listen to. And, and uh, uh, so that's something that you've played a lot, okay. right? Uh, or uh, won a prize for or had a recital and all of that. Then we said, okay, well, we want to encourage more and more people to do it. So now it's 10, 11 minutes. You don't have to do 15 for me. You don't need to do scales or exercises. Just give us a, a sonata or a concerto or some repertoire that you really want to do. So we really encourage that. <clears throat> I would uh, love to have more of those tapes as we as we go along. Um, and then um, Colgate always say, if you can find even more people who uh, are clearly uh, extraordinarily talented, then have them uh, apply early admissions too. Hmm. We've reached question 13. Uh, oh, this must be a special question it is. now. It is. This is a real tough one. Okay. I don't know if you're going to be able to handle this one. <laughs> What's on your record player at home? You mean my CD or my I don't know. Playlist? Do you have a record player? I do because I have a, a lot of vinyl because I've collected it over my entire life. So, I, you know, I love it. And sometimes when I'm listening to, um, well, I often do this as part of my re- preparation, which is extraordinarily long to prepare for each concert. Um, I will listen to five, six, seven versions of that oh. Beethoven symphony or of that Mussorgsky um, pictures at an exhibition or whatever. So the vinyl... I have, let's say, four versions of that, and I have this conductor and this conductor and this conductor. And so I listen to all of them and compare them and see, I like this. No, I don't like that. I like Mm -hmm. that tempo. No, I don't like that dynamic. And that helps me, so preparing. And, of course, YouTube is great for that as well. So um, I'm somebody who always, the correct answer, Dan, is always the music that I'm currently going to conduct. That's your favorite. Oh, okay. All right. But I always, always program music that I love anyway. Um, I'm somebody who really gets into the romantic, the emotion, the, uh, the I can dig deep. There's a little depth to the music. So I love the 19th century repertoire. Um, I think that in Colgate, that our Rachmaninoff Second Symphony performance was just heaven. It was just really wonderful. Our Mahler, Mahler two, Mahler four. I just pit that up against any orchestra that you know that Colgate did. Um, uh, Really repertory that the audience is going to be transported by. They're going to say, I didn't know that there's so emotion that someone's present. So that in a way that they can um, be transported in a different land, a different journey, a different world. That's what I'm after. I mean, I love Mozart too, but it's it's a different way of approaching music. That's logic and mathematics and um, light and shadow um, and contemporary music too, because that's new and fresh and experimental. But I have to say that my heart is in the 19th century stuff. Oh, Professor Cheng, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much Thank for you, Dan. joining the podcast yeah, today. My pleasure. All right. As I always say, tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to send an email to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.